So let's read it together. Chapter 13 of Hebrews, verse 22. It is on the screen if you need it. And here we go. And I appeal to you, brethren, bear with the word of exhortation, for I have written to you in few words. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for these few but anointed and canonized uh, living words that the author of Hebrews has written. And as it is a living word, Lord, we come to it desiring uh, your life to be imparted to us through this, your living word. As we study the verses that are ahead of us this morning, may you speak into our lives. May we not only understand, but also be able to appropriate that which we hear you saying. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I was given an interesting uh, quote recently. I think you'll find it interesting as well. It's from a doctor, a female doctor. And, excuse me, she wrote this. She said, uh, my kids school, public school, sent a note saying that uh, her children can wear Halloween costumes to school tomorrow as long as they don't cover their face because it will hinder their learning environment. <laughs> and the doctor went on to say, I was waiting for the punchline, but evidently they didn't get it. Sometimes words just don't make sense. And yet, there is a tremendous amount of sense in the words that are before us. I shared with you last week from Proverbs chapter 10, verse 19, that in the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise, Proverbs 10, 19. And it is from that vantage point that I trust and believe that the author of Hebrews here writes verse 22. He says, but I have written to you with few words. Now, if you would look at the entirety of the book, of course, 13 chapters, he's calling that few words. But what we've chosen to do here in our systematic study of, of Scripture is take chapter 13 as, as an embodiment of what he is saying as well. Uh, two weeks ago, I was blessed and I guess would say extremely grateful for Pastor Austin and his clear teaching of the Word of God in, in my absence. And he began in chapter 13 with uh, about five of what I would call 12 vignettes. And underscoring that the author was saying in, in verse 1, you know, re continue, remember brotherly love, uh, remember strangers because you could be entertaining angels, verse 1. 
that marriage, uh, uh, sexual relationships within the confines of marriage is honorable, um, but that adultery and fornication, sexual relationships outside the covenant of marriage, brings judgment, verse 4, that uh, we're to remember prisoners that are enchained because their chains are symbolic of who the Christian was before they came to Christ, verse 3, and that the conduct of a Christian should be without covetousness, verse 5, because after all, the Lord is our helper. What can man do to me? Last week, we picked up what I would call the sixth vignette uh, and started this series, which is really a three-part series. Today is part two. Next week, we'll finish it with part three of uh, many instructions with very few words. Many instructions with very few words. And so last week, we started with uh, two of those instructive words. One, rather, when we went to verse 7, kind of unpacked that in a lengthy way about remembering those who rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, uh, to follow their faith, uh, considering the outcome of their conduct. And then he gave, uh, the author gives this uh, powerful, phenomenal fact in the middle of these instructions in verse 8 when he said, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This morning, we pick up where we left off with what I would call the seventh of 12 instructive words throughout the chapter. I bring your attention to verse 9. If you would go with me there, we read it together, and it says... Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. I'll take this verse into two parts. The first being, do not be carried away or carried about with various and strange doctrines. The ones specifically in mind here that the author has in view deal specifically with a return to Mosaic ceremonies and laws that were fulfilled in Christ. But it does go without saying that various And strange doctrines have been uh, rampant in the New Testament church since its inception. You know, this book being written some 30, 35 years after the, the birth of the New Testament church, and already he is reinforcing that there are various and strange doctrines that come into view into the church. He, of course, is writing to Hebrews, talking about a return to Mosaic ceremonies and laws. But, you know, moving forward, we have a long history of strange and various doctrines that 
threatened, have threatened and even have infiltrated the church at times. Commentator William Newell, in his uh, 1947 commentary, mentioned a three as it relates to this, one of which would have been uh, Buckmanism, founded by Frank Buckman. I don't know if any of you would recall that. I hadn't. They also had the name the Oxford Group. And the Oxford Group, uh, operating around uh, the 1960s, was founded upon four absolutes. They are love, purity, honesty, and unselfishness. And they go on to state that these four absolutes are Christian principles for healthy living that help us become more acquainted with God. Now, before you say, well, yeah, that makes sense, hold on a minute. There are a lot of loving, pure, honest, and unselfish people in the life in living today, even some within the confines of what they might call a religion, but that doesn't mean they know God. Jesus, that would discount Jesus' comment in John 4, 6. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man comes to the Father except by me. Remember when he was writing to Philip, he said, if you, how long have I been with you? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. So being loving, endeavoring to be pure, seeking to be honest or unselfish, is in no way a roadmap to help one get acquainted with God. Another uh, various and... Uh, What's the word? Strange. Various and strange doctrine. Dispensationalism. Big word. Say it with me. Dispensationalism. Holds that, and I'll read it, uh, that both the Old Testament and New Testament are interpreted using literal, grammatical, historical uh, interpretation. What do I mean by that? As a result... They reject the idea that the meaning of the Old Testament was hidden in the New Testament and that the meaning of the New Testament is hidden in the Old Testament. They reject it outright. That in itself would discount Jesus' own words when writing to the Pharisees and Sadducees in John 5.39. He said, you do search the scriptures for in them you think you have life. What was he talking about? He was talking about the Old Testament. He said, you do search them thinking you have life, but they are which testify of me. Jesus said that he's in the Old Testament. Another strange and various doctrine, British Israelism also can be called uh, Reformed theology. British Israelism, uh, again, surfaced in the early 1900s and ran through it's also known as Anglo-Israelism, is the belief that the lost ten tribes of Israel migrated to Europe and then to England and became the primary ancestors of the British people and thereby the United States. British Israelism was made popular by the Worldwide Church of God, Dr. Armstrong, uh, Herbert Armstrong, 
Uh, the primary goal behind British Israelism is to claim that England and the United States have inherited the covenant promises of God made to Israel. In other words, the church is now, uh, Israel doesn't exist anymore, it's now the church, and that England and the United States are the ones that hold the promises of God. Wrong. Uh, 2 Corinthians 1.20, the Apostle Paul wrote that all the promises of God are yes and in him, in Christ, amen, to the glory of God. In other words, anyone who has come to Christ, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what nationality, holds inheritance to the promises of God. Another such various and strange doctrine, of course, through the years, Christian science, uh, made popular by Mary Baker Eddy, Eddy in 1821 through 1910, teaches that God, Father and Mother of all, is completely good and wholly spiritual, and that all God's creation, including the true nature of every person, is good and flawless spiritually. This, of course, would reject the truth that we have in the prophecy of Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 4 through 6, surely he, speaking of Jesus Christ, has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was esteemed, uh, he, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquity and the chastisement for our peace was put upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. It is interesting that the doctrine of Christian science went on to say that God's creation is good. Evils such as disease, death, and sin cannot be a part of it fundamentally. Of all the cults, Christian science is less... Uh, Less Christian and less science because it's neither. We, of course, have in the early 1900s moving on into today. Today you have Russellism or Jehovah's Witness, clearly um, a various and strange doctrine. They believe, quote, that Jesus is Michael the archangel and that he is one of the highest created beings. This, of course, contradicts scripture and many scriptures when Jesus says that he himself is God. Jehovah's Witness believe that salvation is obtained by a combination of faith, good works, and obedience. And this contradicts, of course, the message of grace. Jehovah's Witness reject the Trinity because they don't see the word Trinity in the Bible, but refuse to look at the three persons of the Godhead, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, God the Son. And we go on. The reason they do that is because they claim that the church, listen to this, has corrupted the Bible. And their answer for that is that they've created their own Bible. Uh, they claim that the church has corrupted the Bible over the centuries. Thus, they have retranslated the Bible into what they now call the New World Translation. And uh, we have it in courtrooms that none of their translators were actually Greek 
scholars. If you've ever wondered about this book that you hold in your hands, you know, is this really the word of God? Doesn't man have the ability to mess it up? And how can we really know? It's a question that many Christians uh, come to. It's a valid question. I think every one of us should at least ask that question so that you would know what you believe and why you believe it. And I would simply uh, suggest to you today, one of the classics that I found is uh, by Geisler. Uh, it's a general introduction to the Bible. And it's a big book, correct? But it goes all the way through the scrolls that we have in the Old Testament into the canonization of the New Testament, why we have what we have and can know and believe and trust that this word of God we hold is in iner- it is inerrant, is it, a- it is authoritative, and it is inspired by God. You know, finally, I mean, I don't want to overdo the strange and various doctrines, but of course you would have to consider uh, the Mormon Church and what's known as LDS, Church of the Latter-day Saints of Jesus Christ, which uh, the Mormons believe that God was not always a supreme being of the universe. That comes from Mormon Doctrine, page 321. But that he attained that status through righteous living. Uh, They believe that God the Father has a body of flesh and bones as as tangible as a man, Of course, this would reject uh, John's gospel. Jesus said in John chapter 4 that God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. Excuse me. Mormons believe that there are different levels of the kingdom of afterlife, that there's a celestial kingdom, a terrestrial kingdom, and a telestial kingdom. Mormon Doctrine, page 348. Of course, they came up with their own book, Doctrine of Covenants. Uh, And Mormons teach that the relationship between God the Father and Mary was what brought Jesus to earth. Uh, Interesting how they've come up with their own Doctrine and Covenants, the Book of Mormon, and looks very kind of moral on the outside, but it's a strange and various doctrine. To say nothing, church, beloved, to say nothing of the millennial or multiple decades, if you will, of the dogma of Roman Catholicism that has held various Uh, dogmatic truths as uh, in other words one is the veneration of Mary holding Mary equal with God uh, praying to the saints the veneration of saints and what constitutes constitute a saint they make a saint by what a saint does Um, to say nothing of snake oil versions of Christianity that that harbor themselves in deep south of our own country here uh, hyper-Pentecostalism, one of the things hyper-Pentecostals say is that you must speak in tongues in order to be saved. The Bible doesn't teach that. You have things like, horrible things, like the Jim Jones con- 
catastrophe of Jonestown in 1978, uh, 1993, David Koresh and Branch Davidian down in Waco, Texas, and the list goes on and on and on. Do I need to keep going? There's a lot of various and strange doctrine out there. Today, right as I'm speaking, we have feel-good proponents of the gospel message. You're not a sinner. Just think good thoughts and you'll be okay. You can find that on local TV. How about the Word of Faith movement that says... Christians should not be poor and they should not be sick. If you say the right words the right way with the right kind of faith, you won't be poor and you won't be sick. How's that working for you, I would say? But I remind us that the best way you can know if something is true is by spending the bulk of your time in this truth. To read it. To study it. To meditate upon it. David Guzik reminds us that the author of Hebrews is referring, when he says that, to Mosaic ceremony and law. And he gives the antidote to that that sway to various and strange doctrines right there in the second half of of verse 9. Notice with me, he says, For it is good that the heart be established by grace and not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied by them. Commentator David Guzik goes on to say, our hearts will only be established by grace when we have an understanding and appropriation of God's undeserved approval of us. Do you know that you are not approved by God, but in Christ you are? It is God's undeserved, unmerited favor toward us. Grace that is um, placed upon us the moment we come to faith in his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, and his work on the cross of Calvary. He goes on to say that those occupied with rules, works, and then the futile list of approvals for God are not established in grace and not familiar with grace. Do you wrestle with the, the, the what to do and what not to do in order to find yourself approved of God? Stop it! Because I can't be approved of God, neither can you, unless we sink ourselves deep into the soil of the grace of God. Thursday nights, Rebecca Novello, Austin's wife, is going through a tremendous book, Why Grace Changes Everything, by the late Pastor Chuck Smith. Great study. Removes that propensity to think we work or earn our way into his acceptance and favor. 
Now what the author in Hebrews does here is goes on to reinforce this in the next four verses uh, in verse 10. He says, For we have an altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the sanctuary by the high priest for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. Therefore, let us go forth to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach, for we have no continuing city but we seek the one to come. Remember what the subject is. The subject is strange and various doctrines. And so what the author does here is he gives these, these five things that would reinforce a biblical or a true doctrine. When he says we have an altar, he's talking to Hebrews who have become Christians, who would know very well that there was an altar in the temple. And he's saying to them that we as Christians, we have a different altar. An altar from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. What altar can he be talking about? And I would submit to you the cross. Now, commentators are a bit divided on this subject because some will say, you know, in no way has the cross of Jesus Christ ever been an altar. But others will submit, and I would embrace myself, that the cross of Christ is the centerpiece to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus, um, Paul put it this way, 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. He wrote again in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified, that your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the cross and in the power of God. So there is an altar, the cross of Christ. The sacrifice of, of animals and the use of their blood would reject the blood of Jesus Christ who was shed for the penalty of our sin. That the adherence to food, ordinances, rules would ignore God's unmerited favor in his grace. And that outside the camp, when he says, let us therefore go out to him outside the camp, he's suggesting that that Hebrew who has become a Christian, and if we can place this into the living room of our living, who tends to go back to ordinance as, and rules to leave those where they belong and keep Jesus in the forefront of your view. That the city that we look for as Christians and that the Hebrew back at this writing would look for is no longer just Jerusalem. 
It's not that physical city of which the, the temple was and the altar was, but we look for that day in which Christ will come and a new Jerusalem will be established. Establish your heart in grace. Don't be carried about by various and strange doctrines. We turn now to uh, the next instructive word in verse 15. He says, Therefore, by him, let us continually offer the sacrifices of praise to God, that is, the fruit of our lips, giving thanks to his name. And one might wonder why the author would find it necessary to insert this in this uh, list of, of instructive words. But he says, therefore, remember, so it, it's pointing back to all that he has mentioned. And he's saying, because of God's grace, because of his blood, because of who he is and what he's done, that by him, or through him, or in him, all would apply. In Christ, let us continually offer the sacrifices of praise to God. Uh, I'm not a Greek scholar by any means, and I study Greek very lightly, but you'll love this. This uh, was called in the grammar, present active volative subjunctive. How's that? What does it mean? Keep on. Let us keep on. Keep on offering. And I would trust and pray that Sunday mornings, you know, in those first 20 minutes of worship isn't the only time that you and I would be, you know, offering uh, the sacrifice of praise to God, the fruit of our lips. But that all through your week and mine, in the privacy of your home, that your walls, if they had ears, would hear you through the course of the day giving thanks to God whether it is in a song or just in words, is that what takes place in your home? Is that what happens, you know, in your living room when no one else is around? Can I encourage you this week? Let that be the case. Our friend Tommy Walker, who came uh, quite some time ago and did a concert here, maybe some of you remember that. He wrote a song, Worship is the Way. And, you know, getting to know him from years before and then spending a little bit of time when he was here and then following his uh, Tommy Walker ministries on, on YouTube or wherever you want to go, I get it that for him, you know, he's not a, he's not a Bible teacher. He's not. Uh, he's a father. He's a husband. And he's a worship leader. And for him... Worship is the way, the lyrics of his song, that I find his peace, that I find his strength. Uh, and how about you? Do you lift your voice to him through the week? 
Is it possible that in the privacy of your home, you could just find... You said, no, I don't want you to hear me sing. Okay, I don't have to. But the Bible says, just make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Try it this week. See if continually offering the sacrifice of praise. Now, why, why sacrifice? What does sacrifice imply? Answer? That it costs you something. That there's, there's an element of sacrifice in the offering of this praise. So maybe alone it would be the sacrifice of your pride. Maybe publicly here it would be the sacrifice of, of anxious thoughts about what will people think if I raise my hands or I sing louder. I don't know. Just suggesting a few things. But what the scripture does say is keep on offering the sacrifice of praise to God in Christ by him and that means the fruit of your lips. So maybe you this morning say, well, I don't really sing at all. So then you can speak praise. You can walk through your day, just say, Lord, thank you. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for filling me with your spirit. Lord, thank you for opening your word to me. Lord, thank you for that the, I have a roof over my head. Lord, thank you that I have food on my table. Lord, thank you that you've given me these children. Lord, thank you that you've given me this spouse. Lord, thank you for this life. Make a list. And each day begin to give God thanks continually. It pleases God. I love what Spurgeon said. He said, so then, we are to utter the praises of God and it is not sufficient to feel adoration and emotion. That we're to speak it. The ninth word of instruction comes to us in verse 16. I'll draw your attention to it. He says, but do not forget to do good and to share for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. Here's that word again, sacrifices. And the instructive word that the author is giving to the Hebrew who has become a Christian and by which by means of the Holy Spirit would speak to you and I this morning and you at home, if you are a Christian, this letter is to you. And he's saying, don't forget to do good and share. Wow. But he inserts, notice, for with such sacrifices, God is well pleased. That's an interesting addition or broadening of, of the instructive word. What does it really mean? I know you can tell. Is that when I share what I have, it should be sharing that of something that constitutes a sacrifice. Okay, I got three steaks in my freezer. I'll give one. I still have two. <laughs> no sacrifice. 
I got three steaks in my freezer and there's a family that needs to feed three, taking each one out and giving them. Now I have none. I've sacrificed something that I hold dear out of the abundance of the mouth, the heart speaks, so I guess this morning you know I like steaks. <laughs> Would that be a sacrifice? A side note, my grandson Luke, who is a 13-year-old entrepreneur and sells beef at 13, around the dining room table months back says, all right, family, who wants to buy a cow? So you're looking at your grandson, you're saying, well, I don't want to buy anything. No, how can I help you? Next thing I know, there's several of us that are chipping in to buy this cow, and now in about a week, I got a quarter of beef coming. Last night, I was cleaning out my freezer, trying to ditch stuff that's been in there for five years and, you know, make room, right? So side note, steaks are coming. Now, if you ask me, Art, I need you to sacrifice your steaks, I will tongue-in-cheek here, but the point being, what is it that is sacrificial that you will share? What is it of yours that you would give to someone that would mean you would do without? That is the instructive word here because it is that kind of giving that is well-pleasing to God. Of your time, What have you done lately to serve someone else when you would rather be just doing something for yourself? Of your resource. And the list can go on. It's when it's sacrificial is when it pleases God. Um, Proverbs, I'm sorry, Psalm 41.1, Blessed is he who considers the poor, the Lord will deliver him in the time of trouble. Proverbs 3, 27 and 28, do not withhold good from those to whom it is due when it is in the power of your hand to do so. Do not say to your neighbor, go and come back and tomorrow I will give it when you have it within you now. Jesus put it this way, give to everyone who asks of you and from him who takes away your goods Do not ask them back. I remember years ago having a special tool in my garage and someone asking to borrow it. And that old principle, you know, don't lend something out unless you're willing to just give it away. And that's what the Lord is talking about right here. Give it away. Hold loosely the things that you possess. We go on and we'll wind this up this morning. Uh, The 10th instructive word in verse 17, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive, for they watch out for your souls as those who must give account. I find this interesting because it, uh, it is different than where we started last week in verse 7 when the author wrote, Remember those who rule over you who have spoken the word of God to you. And we, I went at length about the difference between caring and ruling, um, harboring this control kind of perspective versus just 
humbling oneself and being a servant to others. Verse 17 is interesting. When it says, obey those who rule over you, of course he includes and be submissive. Oftentimes in my role as your pastor and as a pastor in this community and one who uh, is privileged at times to offer counsel to men and women, married couples, single individuals, etc., um, I find it interesting that uh, when someone comes and says, may I speak with you, we sit and they lay out the conflict that they're in the middle of or the, the hardship that they're experiencing or, or perhaps the, the trial. And they say, what should I do? And my job only is to take them to the word of God, to share the word of God with them about what God... God would have them do as, as a handmaiden or, or servant of the Lord and then just let them go. And, and it is interesting. I don't keep track, but I can tell you this. Um, oftentimes, an individual will just leave and kind of go their own way and take what they want to hear and leave what they didn't want to hear alone. Deuteronomy chapter 18, 19, actually 18, talks about if you have a matter that it's hard to judge between and you go to the, the leader at that time, of course, it would have been the priest, and, and you bring to him that issue, and he says thus, that you're responsible to do that. And that's what the author here is, he is talking about. But he also gives a word to those who are in a position of leadership. He says in the second half of that verse, verse 17, let them, and he's pointing back to those who do rule over the body of Christ, let them do so with joy and not with grief, for that would be unprofitable for you. In other words, every one of us who are in places of leadership or care for the life and the soul of others, we should have an exciting joy about it. You're saying, well, really, Pastor? You're just thrilled about this? And my answer is yes. Uh, and this came to me years ago. I went down to Costa Mesa. I was taking two years to sit under Pastor Chuck. And we took two years to go through the book of Acts. And I've shared this before, but it's, it's just powerful because it, it not only happened to him, but it's, it's happened to me and it happens to every one of us that are in places of pastoral ministry where we're, we're challenged by what we are called to do to remain in a place of joy. And let me explain. So Chuck's talking about this church that's growing exponentially down there, Costa Mesa, and he drive up one day and he gets out of his car and he's walking to his office and he sees a cigarette butt. And he looks at that cigarette butt and goes, cigarette butt. And he lunges down to pick it up and he, he goes, who's smoking on the church property? And he pick it up he was angry about it, you know. And the Lord spoke to him and said, wait a minute. Are you angry? Are you dissatisfied with where I have you and what I have you doing. 
Do you by chance know that that person who smoked that cigarette and put it down there is someone that needs my love and my care? And like Chuck tells the story, he says, Lord, I'm sorry. I thank you, Lord, for this cigarette butt, you know. Well, here we are, years fast forward. Now, I'm down there two years later. I mean, in this two years. And a bunch of us guys, 30, 35 guys that all, quote, we want to be in ministry. We're not sure what we want to do, but we want to be in ministry. And so he comes and he spends like uh, two hours with us once a week to go through the book of Acts. And one day, lo and behold, he comes in and he sets a Pepsi can right on the pulpit. And he starts teaching. He's looking at this can. He says, now, you know, this can, he says, this can is a lesson for me. And we're all like, what's he going to say? He says, Someone left this can in the parking lot, and I stepped on it, you know. And What's my point? I guess I'm going on about something that means being willing to be a servant. And being a servant means that you may be given things you don't like to do. It means embracing things that have come to your way, a mess that maybe somebody else has made. And as a servant of the Most High God, being willing to do with that mess whatever God would have you to do. With that throwaway. With that thing that's in your way and mine. Good admonition for me and us all this morning. Lastly, we'll close. He says in verse 18, pray for us, for we are confident that we have a good conscience in all things, desiring to live honorably, but I especially urge you to do this, to pray for them, the author says, to pray for us, that I may be restored to you sooner. So lastly, he reminds them, be in prayer for those who are caring for you. Don't be carried away by strange and various doctrines. Establish your heart in grace. Keep on offering the sacrifice of praise to God. Don't forget to do good, but remember to do good sacrificially. Submit yourself to those who are over you and will counsel you in your lives and keep on praying for those leaders. Great words of instruction for us this morning. Will you join me as we close with a word of prayer? Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you that you are gracious and kind and slow to anger, full of mercy. And as we have spent this few minutes, Lord, listening and looking at the instruction you give with few words, I ask that you would cause these words 
to become a part of our lives through the week ahead. Begin with me, Lord. Have your way in each one of us. Cause us to know that this week we are drawing closer to you than ever before. That our lives and our worship is not restricted to just a few minutes on a given Sunday. That we would not be carried away by a whole lot of strange and various doctrines out there, but get to know you even better through this, your word. Help us, Lord, we need it. We live in dangerous times. We'll trust you for it. We ask it in Jesus' name. And everybody said,